Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottam is our interpretive guide. This sensational episode tells of a shootout on Gay Street between three prominent Knoxville men in which all three died. Terrible treble tragedy enacted on Gay Street yesterday. Knoxville Chronicle, October 20th, 1882. The bloodiest, most fatal, and most lamentable tragedy that has stained the annals of East Tennessee's history for many years was enacted on Gay Street yesterday forenoon in which Major Thomas O'Connor, General Thomas A. Mabry, and his son, Joseph A. Mabry, Jr., were all three killed instantly. The brief details are about these. General Mabry and R.A. Steele, who has been his bosom friend and almost constant attendant for months past, came off of Market Square and around by the office of Alexander Allison, Esquire, thence out Clinch Street to Gay, turned Ritter's Corner, and passed down on the west side of the street. When they were in front of L.E. Berry's confectionery store, Major Thomas O'Connor was seen to come out of the door of the Mechanics Bank on the step in front which is on the opposite side of the street, rather angling to the north, draw a double-barreled shotgun and level at General Mabry, who was then about 60 feet off, and fire. At this fire, General Mabry fell, and Mr. Steele went rapidly into the People's Bank a few feet distant and said that General Mabry was shot. Major O'Connor fired a second shot, which also took effect in Mabry, He then exchanged his gun for another, which was gotten out of the door of the bank, and appeared to be taking aim again. It was thought that this time he aimed for Steele, but he remained inside the bank. At this instant, Joseph A. Mabry, Jr. appeared in the middle of the street, angling to the northwest, a distance of about 30 feet from Major O'Connor, drew his pistol, took deliberate aim, and fired, the ball taking effect in Major O'Connor's right breast, near the armpit, and penetrating to the heart. Major O'Connor instantly wheeled and with a shotgun lowered in his hands shot Joe and both fell almost instantaneously. Joe rather struggled to his knees and appeared to make an effort to shoot again but fell back and the treble tragedy was enacted and the three men dead in less time than it takes to tell it. Joe Mabry, Jr. was at the office of Esquire Allison, a square away, engaged as an attorney in a lawsuit when the first shot was heard, and he instantly dropped everything and ran with all his might to the spot from where he fired. It was raining at the time, and the streets were full of men passing back and forth. Everybody was struck with consternation at the first alarm. The most intense excitement prevailed, and great crowds gathered about the scene of the tragedy. This occurred about 10.20 a.m., The dead body of Major O'Connor was removed into the rear room of the bank, and the bodies of both General and Joe Mabry were taken into the auction house of Mr. E. A. Akers. Coroner R. H. Hood was summoned at once and impaneled the jury of inquest. The inquest was held first over the remains of the Mabrys in Akers' store and then over Major O'Connor's remains in the bank, the same jury being used in both, the transaction and testimony being the same in both cases. The testimony of a number of eyewitnesses to the tragedy was taken. The evidence was the same at both inquests. 
Dr. M. M. Alexander examined all the bodies and testified that Major O'Connor had only one wound. The ball, a large caliber, entering in front of the right shoulder, went through and penetrated the heart, causing death instantly. The shots on the Mabrys were with duck or squirrel shot, 20 or more in young Joe's right arm and side. Found no pistol shot on him. There were evidently two shots at General Mabry, one taking effect in the breast and abdomen, and one in the legs. The jury then adjourned till two o'clock, met at the courthouse, and agreed upon the following verdict. That Major Thomas O'Connor came to his death by a pistol shot fired from a pistol in the hands of Joseph A. Mabry, Jr., in the city of Knoxville, county of Knox, state of Tennessee, on the 19th day of October, 1882. That Joseph A. Mabry, Sr. came to his death from a gunshot fired from the hands of Thomas O'Connor, in the city of Knoxville, County of Knox, State of Tennessee, on the 19th day of October, 1882. That Joseph A. Mabry, Jr. came to his death by a gunshot fired from a shotgun in the hands of Thomas O'Connor in the city of Knoxville, County of Knox, State of Tennessee, on the 19th of October, 1882. The friends took charge of the body of Major O'Connor in the bank, procured the services of the undertaker, L.C. Shepherd, Esquire, and they were encased in a burial case in the bank, where they were viewed by a very large number of persons, and hundreds were unable to gain a view. About 5 o'clock p.m., the remains were conveyed in a hearse to the late residence of the deceased in the West End. There was only the one wound above mentioned on his person. The bodies of General and Joe Mabry were taken charge of by friends in Mr. Aker's store, who closed his business and showed every courtesy and attention. They were dressed and laid out by Louis Urquhart and were viewed by a vast number of people. Late in the afternoon, they were encased in burial cases and conveyed to the family residence east of the city. On the body of General Mabry were found 35 wounds from shot of various sizes. The shots were in the left breast, abdomen, left side, and leg. On Joe Mabry were found 29 shots, also of various sizes, from buck to duck shot on the right side and arm. On General Mabry was found a new, improved Smith & Wesson pistol with no chamber discharged and a dirt knife with large wooden handle. This was in a scabbard in the left pants pocket. One of the shots struck this handle and carried part of the wood into the flesh. Joe Mabry, Jr. dropped his pistol when he fell. It was a large English bulldog with two chambers empty. Amid the crowds that traversed the street at the time of the killing, it is a great wonder that no one else was killed. As it is, only seven men are known to us to have received any of the stray shots. Of the first, discharged from Major O'Connor's shotgun, six balls, some apparently larger than buck shots, struck the window and facing on the north side of L.E. Barry's door. Four of the shots went on through the door, which was standing open back, two thicknesses of glass, and hit Dr. W. Stewart, who stood facing the soda fountain. One inflicted a flesh wound in his right wrist. The others went through the tails of his coat and on the left elbow. George Stansberry received six shots in the legs, some of them quite painful. Herman Schenk caught two of the shot in his ankle. Sam Shepard had a shot in the leg, and J.M. Hutchinson from the country got one in the foot. None are thought to be serious. Richard Childress had four or five shots through his coat and vest. J.P. Monette of the Express Service had a shot through the sleeve and it lodged in his coat pocket. 
The large bay horse attached to the express wagon was back up to the sidewalk with its head turned up towards Clinch Street. He received six or seven shot in the right thigh, side, and back, some pretty serious ones, and they will probably prove fatal. The tragedy was the sole topic of conversation for the rest of the day, and nothing else was thought of hardly. The streets were thronged with men and boys taking no notice of the rain and slop for the rest of the day, and knots of men were to be found at frequent intervals discussing the matter and viewing the scene of action. There were no demonstrations of any kind from any source looking to make further trouble or bloodshed over the matter. Never before has our community been so shocked by any occurrence. This is due both to the prominence of the parties concerned and the former scenes of carnage and bloodshed which have transpired within the past eight or ten months with which the two Maybreys have been directly connected. It was the busiest day in the history of the Western Union Telegraph Office at this place. Hundreds of messages were received and forwarded, and the wires were kept busy all day and night. The origin of this lamentable tragedy dates back something over a year to the negotiations for a purchase by Major Thomas O'Connor of two pieces of property known as the Cold Spring property and the Chavans place, both of which were heavily mortgaged. From the sale of these, General Mabry received at the time of the transfer $2,000 and has since received $500. It seems that a third party was wishing to purchase the Chavans place, but General Mabry notified him that he could not get it as Major O'Connor was going to present it to his son, Will C. Mabry. This coming to Major O'Connor's ears, he denied it most positively, saying that he was making the purchase for himself and knew nothing whatever of Will in the transaction. Sometime after that, on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1881, Will C. Mabry, son of General Mabry, was killed by Don C. Lusby. It was soon charged by General Mabry that Major O'Connor had procured this killing to get Will out of the way, but it was stoutly and firmly denied by Major O'Connor, who affirmed that he didn't know Lusby at all and had no business connection affecting Will that he knew of. More recently, Major O'Connor was applied to go on a large security debt, which was declared. The hard feeling seemed to intensify as time rolled on. Finally, at the grandstand on the fairground south of the river Wednesday evening, General Mabry cursed and denounced Major O'Connor, commencing by accusing him of being responsible for his son Will's death, and called him a goddamn robber and murderer. Major O'Connor told him that was no time or place, and he would have no difficulty there but would meet him at any time and place and settle matters. General Mabry swore that was the time and place, and that one had to die. This town would not hold them. Friends interfered and prevented a collision which was imminent. It is positively asserted that Joe Mabry and other friends made every attempt since that time to pacify and quiet General Mabry and persuade him to let matters drop. It is also said that Major O'Connor received word yesterday morning from General Mabry that he would kill him on sight that he, Mabry, did not expect to live much longer, but he intended to live long enough to make Tom O'Connor bite the dust. These circumstances being known to a number of persons, friends of both parties, a difficulty was confidently expected at the first meeting of the parties. Immediately after the shooting, James O. Dickens, Charles C. Dickens, and Henry Howard, nephews of Major O'Connor, who were in the bank, were placed under arrest. 
They are guarded at the rooms to await the action of the grand jury on the verdict of the coroner's inquest. That verdict, as a scene, as well as the weight of evidence, implicates no one but the dead men. Mr. Steele, who is with General Mabry, was also placed under arrest, but there being no evidence to implicate him, he was released from further custody. Victims of the Tragedy There are few men in Tennessee or the entire South more widely known or more prominence in business circles than Major Thomas O'Connor, who lost his life in yesterday's tragedy. He was a native of Halifax County, Virginia, and was 46 years of age. He came to Knoxville when but a youth and worked at his trade as a harness maker. He gradually, by indefatigable energy and enterprise and shrewd business management, rose from that position to one of prominence as a successful financier and businessman, perhaps second to no one in the state. For a number of years, he has been a member of the firm of Cherry, O'Connor & Company, lessees of the state penitentiary at Nashville, and during the greater part of that time, he was most of his time in Nashville. But although still engaged in that business, he has within the past year taken up his permanent residence in Knoxville, occupying his beautiful Melrose home in West End, which is one of the handsomest and best improved homes in the South, and he was constantly adding to its attractions. Besides that, he was owner of a vast deal of other property, real estate and personality, in Knoxville and vicinity, and was one of our largest taxpayers. He was wedded to Knoxville and her interests, and had very extensive plans on foot and in prospect looking to the future development of our vast resources of various kinds in the way of locating and building factories and manufactories. He was immediately connected as president with the Mechanics National Bank, recently reorganized and just being refitted in its own building in a very tasty and attractive manner. This is one of the safest and soundest of our financial institutions, and although its president will be much missed, neither the standing of the bank nor the successful progress of its business will be effected in the slightest degree. Mr. E.J. Sanford, vice president and one of Knoxville's ablest and safest businessmen, succeeds to the presidency and will have charge of the business affairs. Major O'Connor was also a partner in the business of the wholesale saddlery and harness establishment of O'Connor & Company, and which is one of the largest and wealthiest manufacturing establishments in the South. He was, besides his extensive business interests, the chief security on the bonds of a number of our county, state, and government officials, and has been for a number of years in succession. Major O'Connor's wealth and extensive operations were not confined to Knoxville, but he was very largely interested in railroad, manufacturing, and mining enterprises, and other modes of business, both in this and adjoining states, and he was one of the wealthiest citizens of the state. He has been for years one of the leaders of the Democratic Party in the state, and was an active politician until recently, when he decided to turn his attention more to home and business than to politics. In his associations, he was genial, affable, and whole-souled to a fault, and few men possessed more warm personal friends than Major O'Connor. He was always known as a man of undoubted courage who never feared an enemy. He leaves a loving, devoted, and worthy wife to mourn his tragic taking off, 
Who in her moments of the bitterest and most heart-rending bereavement has the heartfelt sympathies of friends innumerable? The funeral of Major O'Connor will take place at 11 o'clock a.m. tomorrow, further notice of which will be given. A special to the Chronicle from Nashville announces the fact that the Hermitage Club, of which he was a member, will meet today to take action relative to Major O'Connor's death. General Joseph A. Mabry, who lost his life in the tragedy, was born January 26, 1826, and was accordingly 56 years and 9 months of age. He was a native Tennessean, a lifelong resident of Knoxville, and has for years been one of the most widely known citizens of the state, being one of the oldest and most prominent families. In former years, General Mabry figured prominently in public life and was possessed of large landed estates and abundant wealth, but was overtaken by the misfortunes of the late Civil War, from the effects of which he had never recovered, though he yet controlled large landed estates. He has always taken a deep interest in and been actively engaged in the management and handling of fast and blooded horse flesh, and Mabry's helmets are the best known race stock in this part of the country. General Mabry always bore the reputation of a brave, fearless, and dangerous man towards an enemy bold and aggressive to a fault, yet to a friend he was a friend indeed, open-hearted and generous to a fault, quick to resent an insult or attack, and slow to forgive a wrong, real or supposed. His son, Joseph A. Mabry, Jr., was born May 23, 1855, and was but little over 27 years of age, unmarried. Joe is one of the best-known young men of our city, possessing a large circle of acquaintances, and it was among those to whom he was best known that he was most respected. He was genial, sociable, and affable. He has been a practicing attorney at the Knoxville Bar for several years, and in August last was elected Justice of the Peace for Knoxville. Like his father, Joe was also an ardent admirer of fast horse flesh and took much interest therein. For cool, unflinching, and undaunted courage he had few equals, and better metal and grit was never found in any man, be he whom he may. He was not quarrelsome, nor possessed of a disposition to provoke a difficulty. On the contrary, he was known to always counsel peace, but he would never shirk a conflict when honor was involved, and in times that have a tendency to try men's souls, he was never found wanting." He never became excited in any emergency, but his nerve was steady and aimed deadly on any occasion when nerve was needed. The deceased leave a most excellent wife and mother, and a large, interesting, and intelligent family of children, brothers, and sisters. Mrs. Mabry has certainly been subjected to the most excruciating bereavement, which would be calculated to rend the very heartstrings of any human and the most profound sympathies of an appreciative community go out for her and the peculiarly bereaved family in their hours of deep and agonizing grief. The funeral of both General and Joe Mabry will take place from the residence at 3.30 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Further notice will be given. The details of yesterday's tragedy naturally cause the mind to revert to the tragic scenes enacted in our city during the past few months, in which the Mabrys have been directly interested and concerned. It is remembered that the first act occurred Christmas Eve, 1881, in the killing of Will C. Mabry, second son of General Mabry, by Don C. Lusby. 
A long and tedious trial of Lusby resulted in a mistrial, and he was released on bail. On the 26th of August, 1882, in the City Hall came the next conflict, in which Don Lusby and his father, Moses Lusby, met death at the hands of General Mabry and his son Joe. The two Mabrys were indicted and tried for murder, but at the present term of criminal court, they were acquitted of the charge of murder. Here's Knox County historian Steve Cottom. Steve. Hello. So we're talking about the shootout, the famous shootout between General Mabry and Thomas O'Connor. The story was picked up by newspapers all over the country, certainly as far away as New York. It was such an unusual tale of violence, and so many very prominent people did that it was uh, it was quite an attention getter. And of course, it was footnoted in uh, Mark Twain's life on the Mississippi. He used it as an example of the violence of the Code of Honor of the South. And he called it an exchange of courtesies. Exchange of courtesies. So it's a complicated story, I think. Uh, and I think the, it's, it's tragic. The two men were both so prominent and they were in so many ways so similar. They had similar weaknesses. Um, General Mabry, to, to clarify the record, was never a military figure in any shape, form, or fashion. I wondered about that. He actually outfitted a lot of Confederate troops, and if you outfitted a certain number, you were a colonel, and if you outfitted a certain number, you were a major, and if you outfitted a certain bigger number, you got a courtesy title of general. And he got the courtesy title of general for his support for the Confederacy, and he continued to use that that title for the rest of his life, but he was never in active military service. Thomas O'Connor, on the other hand, was a... um, a soldier in the Civil War, the Confederate Army from Knoxville, and he actually served in the outfit that General Mabry outfitted. He was in Mabry's Corps, whatever it was. So it was a, it's kind of a strange twist of fate. Um, O'Connor was a, a very, very ambitious man. He came to Knoxville uh, as a young man from Halifax County, Virginia. His family was um, not well-to-do. His father was an elderly wheelwright, and he apprenticed Thomas and his brother to a, um, a saddler and wagon maker in Halifax. And Thomas stayed just long enough to, to learn the trade and ran away and joined his two of his sisters who were here in Knoxville, Martha and Rebecca. And uh, tradition has it that, that Rebecca possibly loaned him the money to start a saddle shop. Uh, the other tradition is that he was a lifelong gambler, a serious gambler, and that he won the stake to start his business at cards. He was a, apparently a very, very good gambler and a huge risk taker, and so was Mabry. He um, prospered right but in the years before the war uh, to the extent that he had, uh, he had was very active in local politics. He was a city alderman right before the war, uh, Civil War broke out. And he immediately listed in the Confederate Army. He served until 1863. He was captured at Cumberland Gap. And he was accused of trying to cook up a deal to turn the cannon, the Confederate cannon, over to the Union Army. So he was in some serious trouble. But he got sent to the Union prison, Johnson's Island military prison. And stayed there long enough that all the potential problems died away and he came back to Knoxville when he got released and the war was over and he was uh, held, still held in high repute 
and he prospered. He he was he he gambled on cards especially and on horses. And Joseph Mabry did the same thing. So they were they were alike in that respect. And uh, they both eventually had racehorses, especially General Mabry, who was a a big admirer of what they called horse flesh back in those days, really fine-blooded horses. And most people don't know that Knoxville was uh, Knoxville, Granger County, Monroe County. There were some serious horse racers back in the antebellum era, particularly. And in Knoxville, even up until the late 19th, early 20th century, there were still uh, some significant racing tracks and horse races and and, uh, a considerable amount of gambling going on. Um, So Mabry... um, Mabry was an, a little older man, and his star was falling, and O'Connor's was rising. O'Connor got back into Democrat politics. Um, Mabry was one of the delegates to the 1870 Constitutional Convention, which smoothed the path for the Democrats, the pre-Civil War Democrats, to come back to power. So here's Thomas O'Connor in Knoxville. Business is flourishing. He's uh, very ambitious. He's kind of a rising star, and he's being talked about as a candidate for governor of the state. He had started um, saddle shops. He had one in, in Knoxville. He started one in Atlanta. He started another one in Nashville, and they were all doing quite well. And he was probably also cooking the books a little bit, but at the time of the, because he was gambling, he was probably covering some losses, playing with money that wasn't really his to play with, but uh, at least that's something we would might suspect. But he married very, very well. He married uh, Francis Renshaw House, who was of old Savannah family who moved here to Knoxville. And uh, so he was really well established by by the years immediately before the shootout. She had bought um, O.P. Temple's house, Melrose, which was a really fine mansion on the edge of the city with her money and, and her name. So he was, you know, he was the rising star and Mabry's finances weren't so very good. He was a, uh, he drank excessively and gambled a little unwisely, and I think they both probably did that. But mm-hmm. uh, the immediate altercation probably started, I think, with Mabry's um, sort of, I guess you'd have to say, paranoid suspicion that O'Connor was out to ruin him financially and, and seize his spot in society. I think that's kind of a, in a nutshell, what he thought. And he uh, particularly thought that Mabry had something to do with the death of his son, Will Mabry. I really didn't understand that part, how mm-hmm. he thought that Thomas O'Connor was going to buy a piece of property and give it to his son, Mabry. Yeah, yeah, Will and, Mabry. yeah, and actually, you know, O'Connor said it, uh, telegraphed back when he heard these stories that, you know, if, if that's what he thinks the deal is off, and then Mabry went ahead with the deal, he probably needed the cash but it, that was a kind of bizarre idea. But then, not long after that, Will Mabry was killed in a drink, a Christmas drinking bout with one of his buddies, Don Lesby, and uh, and somehow Mabry thought that that O'Connor had had something to do with making that happen. This was sort of just a little germ of what paranoia, whatever. You know, there there is a suspicion that uh, well, well, M- O'Connor and Mabry both had political ambitions, but O'Connor probably more so than Mabry in 1882. And the one thing they could not do that would have ruined them was fight a duel, in the old-fashioned Southern duel. It was illegal. 
it would bar you from voting, it would bar you from public office. So it became like the wild, wild west, you know. Mm -hmm. They had an altercation at the uh, racetrack, and the racetrack was right across the river, South Knoxville, across the Gay Street Bridge, not very far, near Perez Dickinson's Island Home property. We don't know a whole lot about the track, but in the newspaper accounts, it was tremendously popular. The races would start in the late morning and go for hours, and people would go spend the day at the racetracks. And there were there was a lot of gambling going on, and I imagine a lot of drinking too, and uh, a lot of um, it was it was a very festive kind of thing. But this particular day, uh, the day before the shootout, Mabry accosted Thomas O'Connor and said that he was. He, had, uh, he wanted to shoot out, have the shootout right there, but that would have been a little bit more like a duel. And, May, and O'Connor said he didn't have a pistol and, and sort of put him off. But they had uh, Mabry sent another message that, they, that he was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And Mabry, I think, was a good, very good shot, and he had always had pistols. He was always armed. I have a suspicion Thomas O'Connor was not a terribly good shot. So that's why you have the, the double-barrel shotgun versus the pistol. Um, there's a suspicion that um, maybe O'Connor's bank was in trouble, the mechanic's bank, and that there's there's even the suggestion that maybe somebody inside the bank did the shooting of Joseph Jr. But at any rate, when the shots were fired, everybody was dead. Right. <laughs> there's three corpses in the street, right. and it was a you know it was very unsettling. And for somebody these, these people as prominent as this to end up in this kind of a situation. It was pretty amazing. The two Mabrys had been indicted and tried for murder earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, then as now, if you were prominent enough and you had the right defense strategy, you could could get away with uh, a crime of in, in the heat of passion. And, a, and the strategy, o- O'Connor's strategy may have been that if he killed Mabry in this passion, this outburst in the street, and he survived, that he would be acquitted. You know, taken into court, mm. but then he could say, "Well, this man's threatened my life over and over, and so you know, I had to defend myself." And then he could have gone on to be governor. He wouldn't have fought a duel, and so he just didn't think about Joseph Jr. being nearby and running up to the scene, and and certainly all the the second round of gunfire. Whoever fired the various pistols that went off or guns that went off in the uh, in the fray. Mm-hmm. That was pretty, it was a pretty amazing story, and it happened right here in front of the History Center, the block in between Church and Clinch on Gay Street, which is the Mechanics Bank was across the street about where there is still a Mechanics Bank. It's not the same building, I don't think. I'm pretty sure it's not, but but right about where that, uh, that little marble building across the street was. Um, the bizarre end of all this was actually the burial at Old Gray, which occurred two days later and had to be carefully orchestrated so that the mourners, the two families, would not encounter each other. There was even the possibility of more bloodshed. (laughs) So they had to really carefully engineer. uh, Mabry is buried near the front of Old Gray Cemetery, not far from the circle, and O'Connor's buried further back in the cemetery where the um, his relatives were, his the house family was. So he's you know, they're not close together, but they certainly had to be very careful about timing the funerals. And funerals had to take place really quickly in those days before embalming. So this is two days after the shootout, so they had to uh, 
and to go ahead and have the funerals, but they did they did work out just the details. <laughs> I think O'Connor and Mabry were so much alike in their weaknesses and their flaws. They both drank to excess. They both loved to gamble. Um, O'Connor always was pushing the envelope with his business enterprises and almost going over the edge. And he uh, and the last time he did that before he he died, he saved himself by becoming an agent for the lease of convicts to the coal mines. He leased these criminals, criminals in quotes, from the state prison and then leased them to the coal mines. He was an agent, and he even, Mm. according to reliable source, collected and sold the urine of the miners to the tanneries. So he was... was (laughs) That play in New York, Urine Town, it was a little bit too close. (laughs) But he, he was a you know he was a real operator and he uh, he must have been pretty charismatic to be able to pretty charming to be able to rise in society so quickly from a fairly low spot to such prominence in the life of the city. He was here probably oh he was probably here about twenty some years altogether mm-hmm. in Knoxville. I don't suppose he ever went back to Halifax because he was a runaway apprentice and. Uh, that was a small criminal offense, even in those days. So. Breach of contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You're That's welcome. Interesting. <laughs> You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past.